Merry Christmas. We are working through our four traditional Advent themes, which are hope and love and joy and peace. So we've already together looked at hope and love this morning. Our theme is joy. Our text, as was just read, is Psalm 98, 1 through 6. If you haven't turned there already, would you turn there now? And while you're turning to Psalm 98, I'm going to read a hymn, a hymn written by Isaac Watts in 1719. It has become the most published hymn in North America. It was the first hymn we sung today. Let me read this to you. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive him as king. Let every heart prepare for room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curses found. He rules the earth with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness, the wonders of his love. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive him as king. Let every heart prepare for room and heaven and nature sing. We sing these songs so much in this season and we hear them still just about everywhere we go. Playing in the car, maybe playing at work, playing in the mall. And we can forget the words to these songs. To stop without the melody and to read the words of a hymn like this that is so clearly and unashamedly about Jesus Christ as our Lord, Savior, and treasure. That's amazing, isn't it? So many people who love this song, for example, and sing this song and have no idea what it means. But we sing it very differently because we know what it means and our hearts are wrapped up in our singing. So we'll talk about joy this morning. Before I preach this sermon, we should pray. Please bow your heads with me. Our Father in heaven, 
Thank you for the joy that we can have in Christ. Thank you for sending your son to live, suffer, and die in our place. And to raise him from the dead so that we too could be raised from the dead and be reconciled to you. And remind us this month, God, as we celebrate the day when this main character, your son, Jesus Christ, was born into your story. We're so thankful for that day. We're so thankful for his life and his death and his resurrection and that he now stands at your right hand as our advocate, as our dear eldest brother, as our closest friend, as our Lord, our Savior, our greatest treasure. We have nothing without you. And there is nothing on this earth compared to you that we even desire besides you. Oh God, give us joy this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And now, here is the song Isaac Watts based his song on. I don't know if you knew that, but Mr. Watts was reading Psalm 98 when he wrote that hymn, Joy to the World, and he was basing that hymn on Psalm 98, and I hope you know what a psalm is. It's a song. That is what a psalm is, and so we don't know the melody But we do have these words. Let me just read the first six verses. That's our springboard today. Verses 1 through 6, Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. So let me give you our outline this morning. I'm going to spoil all the surprises right off the bat. We'll ask a few questions together and then go to God's Word for the answers as we talk about joy. And here's where we'll be going. Our first question will be, why are we here? 
And the answer will be that we have been made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Next, we'll ask the question, what is joy? Or what does it mean to enjoy God forever? And joy, the answer is a deep and durable delight in God. And then third, where will this joy in God come from? How will I cultivate this joy in God? The answer, it comes from belief in and knowledge of God. It comes from belief in and knowledge of Christ. And then the fourth and final question we'll ask will be, well, what if I don't have joy today? So let's go back to our first question. Why are we here? And I don't mean why are you in this building? This is a bigger question than that. It's more like, why are you on this planet? Why are you here? Why am I here? Why do you exist? You are not an accident. You are not meaningless. Your life is not without purpose. There is a reason that you exist. There is a reason that you are here. Do you know this morning why you are here? You are not here for yourself. You are not here even for others. Isaiah 43, 7 gives us an answer to this question of why am I here? If you ask me, hey Eric, why do you exist? My answer will be something like, I don't know. You should ask the one who made me. So if someone made you, someone created you, if someone did make you, someone did create you, then that's the one who gets to answer the question of why you exist. You didn't make yourself get born. You didn't choose your birthday. You didn't choose your hair color, your eye color, your personality, your family, your place of birth. You didn't choose any of those things. It just happened to you. But God, he was in charge of all of that. So why do I exist? And there's a, a nice, tidy answer in Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, 
whom I formed and made. So there it is, and it's all over the Bible. God formed you. God made you. Why did he form you? Why did he make you? For his glory. Here is how the Westminster Catechism put it. Catechism is not just a Roman Catholic thing, by the way. Catechism is also a a Protestant thing. A catechism is just teaching theology through questions and answers. Usually pretty simple questions and fairly simple answers. And the most famous catechism, probably the best catechism, and even other great catechisms are built on this catechism, is the Westminster Catechism, written in the 17th century, and the very first question gets to answering our question of why I am here. What is, the question, some of you know it, what is the chief end of man? What a great question that we all want to know. Why am I here? So we teach one another and we teach our kids, what is the chief end of man? The answer is man's chief end is to glorify God. That is why you are here. You are here and I am here to glorify God. I am here for God's glory. I am here to glorify God, to make much of God. Not to make much of me, but I want to make much of me. Not to make much of you, though I want to make much of you. We're here to make much of God. Now let me say something else that may be surprising to some of you. A lot of you it won't be. But it may be surprising to some of you. And some of you may even think I'm going prosperity gospel here. So just stay with me if you're uh, offended at how positive I sound now. We're answering the question, why am I here? I'm here to glorify God. The second thing that we need to say is, you were made to be happy. I know some of you have hang-ups with that word, and that word is misused a lot. It used to be a good word. It's not as good a word anymore, I know. But do you know this today, that you were made to be happy? Most people have a sense of this. Most people know this instinctively, that I'm supposed to be happy. And when I'm not happy, something wrong. Something needs to change. This is uh, the pursuit of happiness. Happiness, and we all pursue it, and we encourage those we love to pursue it. Every single one of you, every single day, every single week, 
you are pursuing your happiness. Those who love you, those that you love, you are pursuing their happiness. You want to be happy? You want those you love to be happy. It's okay to admit that. And you sound kind of silly when you say you don't want to be happy. Of course you want to be happy. We're on to this. We just don't know how to find it. True happiness. We often settle for what we think is true happiness, not knowing the real thing. There's a a well-known sermon written by C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory. And he talks about this. And he talks at the very beginning of his sermon by how easily satisfied we are with the things of this world. And it is this built-in pursuit of happiness that we all have But he says, we are far too easily pleased. And he compares us when we enjoy the things in this world more than we enjoy God. Or uh, he compares our pursuit of happiness that stops short of God. He compares that to a, a little kid who's making mud pies in the slum who doesn't want to go to the ocean for a vacation because he doesn't understand how great the ocean is. And he thinks these mud pies that he's making in the slum are as good as it gets. And people on the outside are saying, you have no idea how good it gets. It's so much better. But he doesn't know that. He doesn't see that. So he just keeps playing in the mud. And this is us. We are far too easily pleased. Our pursuit of happiness is not the problem. Our pursuits are misguided. Or we're following the wrong map. Augustine famously says that you have created us for yourself, O God, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. So that's what we're doing as people. God has built us this way. We are made to be happy. We are made to be joyful. We know this. We're after it. We're pursuing it, but we're looking for it in all the wrong places. And we find a little here and we find a little there, but it's not deep. It doesn't last. It's not strong. It comes. It goes. It's because we have been built to find joy only in God. Nothing else will be enough. This is one of the lessons the author of Ecclesiastes had learned by the time he wrote that book. And he looks back on his life and everything that he had tried to find joy in. And what does he say over and over again? Vanity, vanity, vanity. It was just a chasing after the wind. There will be no true joy unless you are enjoying God. Joy in anything else 
is not as good as it could be, and it is always a crisis away from vanishing. Now let me put these truths together for a more complete answer that I gave you at the beginning. Why are you here, friends? Listen, you have been made to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And that's why you're here. Joy. You have been made for joy. I didn't quite finish the answer to that first question of the Westminster Catechism. The question is, what is the chief end of man? And those of you who know it know the full answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So you and I have been made by God for joy. So you and I should pursue joy. We should pursue joy in God. And that is not a contradiction to loving God or obeying God. Because sometimes people will respond to this by saying, wait a minute. Are we sure that the Bible makes this joy we're supposed to have in God the priority? Isn't it more important to love God? Isn't it more important to obey God? There is no contradiction there. We are absolutely called to love God. Jesus says that he sums up by saying, Love the Lord your God in Matthew 22 with all of your heart with all of your mind, and with all of your soul. Love the Lord your God, he's saying, with everything that is in you. And that love, John 14, 21, does translate to obedience. He who loves me will obey my commands. So you're right. You say you love God, then you will obey his commands. But listen. This love of God, this obedience to God is not a begrudging love. It's not a have to love. It is true that love is a choice. Some of you have that book. It is true that sentiment is not enough and emotion is not enough and Feeling is not enough, and so if I say I love you, but I don't actually make choices to love you and that are for your good and for your best, then I probably don't love you. That's true. Love is a choice. Love is a duty, but love is also a delight. And think about people that you love and think about people who love you. Wives, think of your husbands. When he says he loves you, do you want to hear him go on and on about how he is dutifully committed to you? Is that a word that just makes you happy? When he starts giving you like that duty language? No matter how badly I want to stop 
doing right by you. I won't because it is my Christian duty to make this choice over and over. That doesn't do anything for you, does it? You want delight to be upriver from the actions toward you. So those you love, you, you enjoy one another, you delight in one another. It is a pleasure to love God, not a pain. That's legalism. That's religion. And that's not Christianity. People will say things to one another that I think confuses us when it comes to God. We may say things like, I love you, but I don't really like you right now. That's a a weird thing to say. I've said that before. That's a really weird thing to say. But I think it's that I'm committed to you. I'm not going anywhere because I'm committed. But I don't want to be here. That's not love for God. Well, we love God and we like God. It's not as if we love God in spite of some things about Him we really can't stand. That's not enjoying God. Some of you Christians know you should and say that you want to Honor God and glorify God, but you don't enjoy Him. And so you are not glorifying God the way you should. And it's not enough to be joylessly faithful and obedient. But I obey God. But I do the right things. I say the right things. At the end of the day, I'm faithful. Friends, if you do that without joy, that is not bringing glory to God. And I think lots of Christians do that. It was one of the indictments on Israel that God made. He told them in Deuteronomy 28, 47. Well, let me read you the judgment first, and then we'll read what they did to deserve this judgment from God. He sh- the judgment was, you shall ser- verse 48, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. I think you'd agree that's quite a judgment. Wow, what did they do? What did they do? Verse 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. That's the indictment. So you served him, 
but there was no joy in it. There was no gladness in it. So if I'm not joyfully obeying God, if I'm not joyfully submitting to God, then there is a problem in my soul that needs attention. That's where we're going this morning. If I don't have joy in Christ, there is a problem in my soul. This needs attention. It's not enough that I'm checking the boxes and doing everything on the list if He is not my treasure, if I'm not enjoying God. John Piper said this very famously in his what has become a classic, Desiring God. I know many of you love John Piper. And so what has he said? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Amen. Jonathan Edwards is where John Piper first saw this in the Bible. He said it this way. Think about this, this enjoying God. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. God made the world that he might communicate and the creature receive his glory and that it might be received both by the mind and the heart. And listen, he that testifies his idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also of his delight in it. So what is this explaining the verses that we are looking at telling us? It's not enough to just see God's truth. It's not enough to just know who God is. It's not enough to just do the right things. We must enjoy God. We must delight in God. So again, you and I have been made to glorify God by enjoying Him, which is why joy is a command. This is not optional. Christian. This is not a request from God. Gee, I wish you'd be joyful. That's not the force of the scriptures. Let me read them to you, some of them. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. God's people are to, according to Romans 12, 8, do acts of mercy cheerfully they are, according to 2 Corinthians 9, 7, give cheerfully. Pastors, according to Hebrews 13, 17, are to keep watch over souls with joy. Matthew 5, 12, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, rejoice always. 
Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This, Christian, is not an option. I must be joyful. Really joyful. Not You know what that is? It's a smile, but it's not a smile. This is, this is, think about this. As we talk more about what joy is, this is God commanding you to feel something toward Him. So number two, what? What is this joy? So God has made me to glorify him by enjoying him. So what is this joy? I want to make sure we all understand this today. What does it mean to enjoy God? I'll read the verses, but here's a helpful definition. A pastor, Sam Storms, said, what is joy? It is a deep, durable delight in God that ruins you for anything else. Everything becomes sour. It ruins your taste buds for all other pursuits of pleasure. So this joy is a delight in God. I'm going to enjoy God. I'm going to delight in God. Psalm 36, 8. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Psalm 16:11 says that God fills me with joy in his presence, and there are pleasures at his right hand forever. Psalm 73, 25 says, There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. Psalm 63, 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Job 22, 25, Then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. And Psalm 43, 4, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. So this joy is a delighting in God. That nothing else comes close to. That nothing else compares to. 
That doesn't mean that there aren't other things that you enjoy in this life, and we'll get there. But it means that if you didn't have any of those things and all you had was Jesus, your joy could be full still. So it's a delight in God and Pastor Storms used these two words that I think he got from John Piper from his four-hour joy book. This joy that we're called to have, it is deep and durable. Those are helpful adjectives for me. So this joy, it, it is deep and durable. Here's the scripture. Ones like Romans 5, 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. So, this joy is so deep and it's so durable that even in suffering, it doesn't go anywhere. Or 2 Corinthians 8, 2. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That verse has always struck me. You hear the two things that are together describing these people? Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. We didn't even think that was possible as Americans. It's possible. Those can go together. Extreme poverty, destitute materially, and yet an abundance overflowing of joy. Wow. Habakkuk 3, 16 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice, that's joy's verb, in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So this joy in God is deep and durable. It is the kind of joy that will help your heart survive suffering. It is the kind of joy that will make you flourish in Sickness. It is joy that will help a man and a woman to persevere in their marriage for decade after decade after decade. It will empower your soul to overcome addictive behaviors. It will help you praise God even when you lose the things of this world. It will encourage you who are timid and weak. That is joy in God. Question number three. 
So where will this joy come from? Or how do I cultivate this joy that I'm commanded to have? This joy comes from belief in and knowledge of God. So, the more you know God, the greater your capacity for joy. But not just the more you know of God, the more you believe what you're coming to know of God. Right? There are people and demons who know a lot about God, but there's no joy because they don't believe the things that they say they know of God. So you, Christian, you are a believer. You're a believer. This isn't just a myth. This isn't legend. This isn't just a a story told by men. This is truth. And your joy is rooted in your belief in and your knowledge of God. Your knowledge of Christ. Joy comes from knowing Christ. The Puritan William Gurnall answered our question, where will this joy come from? He said, the reason... Why many poor souls have so little heat of joy in their hearts. And I wonder if that's some of you this morning. He's thinking about you when he talks about poor souls. And there's so little heat of joy in their hearts. The reason, he said, is that they have so little light of gospel knowledge in their mind. The further a soul stands from the light of truth, the further he is from the heat of comfort. Joy comes from belief in and knowledge of Christ. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Or 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. And what's the result? You know Him, you believe in Him. And so you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Where will this joy come from? I need to know Christ. I need to know Him. I need truth. I need sound doctrine. I need good theology. I need to have a Christian worldview. Why? So that I can look down on others who are not as theologically astute as I am? No, so that I can have more joy. The pursuit of sound doctrine is the pursuit of joy. I want to know and understand more of who God is so that my joy will be full. 
So teach yourself truth. Teach your family truth. So think about this. How I thought about this this week. What are the implications for parents who want Christ to be the ultimate joy for their kids as they grow up? Well, they need to know him. We need to teach our kids who Jesus is, who God is, and why nothing else compares to him. Bad theology equals no joy. No theology equals no joy. Weak theology equals weak joy. Good theology can equal joy. Thomas Watson, at the beginning of his book, All Things for Good, said, There are two things which I have always looked upon as difficult. The one is to make the wicked sad. The other is to make the godly joyful. Dejection in the godly arises from a double spring, either because their inward comforts are darkened or their outward comforts are disturbed. Well, you have no control over your outward comforts. I mean, you try to control them, but you can't. I have no control over my outward comforts. They will be disturbed today. But friends, do not let your inward comforts become darkened. Now he's pointing us to truth again. I need to know God. I need to know more of him if I'll have joy. So before we move on and conclude with our fourth question, I think this is a good place for us to Maybe pause and consider, am I joyful this morning? I'm sure you've been thinking about it as we've gone along. And maybe something was read in the word that already has you answering that question. But as you hear about why you're made and as you hear about what it means to enjoy God, to enjoy Christ, are you joyful this morning? Are you rejoicing this morning? No matter what's going on in your life, are you rejoicing in Christ today? Would people around you know that you are joyful? And would they know that you are joyful because of Christ Sometimes Christians try to say, well, I'm, I am joyful deep down. You just can't see it. But underneath all this grumpiness, I'm really joyful. Well, the Bible talks about this, doesn't it? And it talks about the people of God and it talks about uh, believers and they are a cheerful bunch. We're cheerful people. There's a, 
There's a lot of laughter in the Bible. There's smiling. So what I'm saying is the joy, it's not just, it's, it's so deep that no one ever sees it. Hey, do people around you see it? Are you cheerful? Do you rejoice? Do you laugh? Do you smile? Because you know Christ? I struggle with this. I know it's there, but it it doesn't come out the way I want it to or the way it should. I'm more moody than I want to be. Are you joyful this morning? If you're not, what is the problem? What is the obstacle to your joy? Why aren't you cheerful? Why aren't you able to smile? Why aren't you able to laugh and enjoy God and enjoy his gifts to you and enjoy your family and your friends and enjoy the life that he has given you? What are the obstacles there? Why aren't you able to enjoy this? Are you suffering? Is that the obstacle you have to work through? Are you suffering? Are you, are you so busy? Are you so busy that you can't even stop to think about who God is and what his gifts to you are? Are you legalistic? Maybe you didn't know or think about this morning your obligation to joy and you're a great rule follower and you make sure everybody around you follows the rules, but you don't know how to have fun in Christ. You don't know how to delight in God. What is the obstacle? There are obstacles to your joy every day, aren't there? One of ours in our family is a, is a long car ride with six children in the car. That's a joy obstacle. <laughs> the kids would agree. They're not enjoying it most of the time either. I'm trying to do two things at once. Drive a car and get everybody to stop doing things they shouldn't do. And that doesn't go well. And it doesn't work. And I'm trying to look at the road. I can't even look at them. So you know how you handle that. You just, you get louder and louder so that they really understand how serious it is. And pretty, it's just as an obstacle to joy. Maybe for you, it's how can I be cheerful in a car with seven people? Maybe it's how can I be cheerful and have joy at work? In a job that I don't like, that I don't want. Maybe it's a struggle at home. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe you're waiting for an MRI result.
Maybe it's that Christmas is in a week and there aren't gifts under the tree. And there's no money in the bank. What is the obstacle to your joy this morning? There is an unchanging God that your joy can and should be in right now. Or maybe you do have joy this morning. But ask yourself, is it because you know Christ? Is it because you believe in Christ? This might be the bigger problem for many of you. Maybe there isn't much suffering and you've sort of had a charmed life and everything is going pretty well and you have more than you need and that's many of us isn't it as Americans in the 21st century and it goes so well and you're you're actually really cheerful and really happy and there's a lot of laughter and you are enjoying life and you need to ask yourself is Christ at the bottom of that joy if all of those things go if all of those things disappear will you still have joy do you have a good godly biblical understanding of the stuff in this world that you enjoy do you know that these things you enjoy are things you do not deserve do you know you're not entitled to them Do you know they are a gift from God? So do you enjoy them with gratitude? Do you enjoy them with thankfulness? It is very easy for us to get so caught up in enjoying the things of this world that we begin to think we're entitled to them. And the truth is, you enjoy it way less when you think you're entitled to it. You will enjoy the things that God gives you more if you remember, I don't deserve them. I mean, that's the reminder I need this Christmas. I mean, the next couple weeks, knowing what's happening in our family, some things are going so well, and God has answered prayers in, in tremendous ways and things are going to be happening and we're going to be seeing family and we're going to be exchanging gifts and we're going to be eating good food and I mean so many wonderful things and I have to remind myself that I am not entitled to any of this. I don't deserve one ounce of this. It is from the merciful and gracious hand of God. Now, I will enjoy it even more if I think that way, and God will be glorified in my enjoyment. I was very helped by this quote this week by Douglas Wilson, and this is how he said it, and it was helpful to me because rather than just enjoying the things that God has given me well, I'll just feel guilty that I'm enjoying things too much. I don't know if you ever felt like that. So this helped me. He said, celebrate the stuff. 
I thought, what? But he went on. Use fudge and eggnog and wine and roast beef. Use presents and wrapping paper. Embedded in many of the common complaints you hear about the holidays, consumerism, shopping, gluttony, are false assumptions about the point of the celebration. You do not prepare for a real celebration of the incarnation through 30 days of Advent Gnosticism. Sin is not resident in the stuff. Sin is found in the human heart, in the hearts of both true gluttons and true Scrooges. Both those who drink much wine and those who drink much prune juice. If you are called up to the front of the class and you get the problem all wrong, it would be bad form to blame the blackboard. That is just where you registered your error. In the same way, we register our sin on the stuff. But because Jesus was born in this material world, that is where we register our piety as well. If your godliness won't imprint on fudge, then it is not true godliness. Some may be disturbed by this. It seems a little out of control, as though I am urging you to go overboard. But of course, I am urging you to go overboard. Think about it. When this world was in sin and error pining, did God give us a teaspoon of grace to make our dungeon a tad more pleasant? No. He went overboard. In conclusion, I I mentioned earlier something that was maybe worried some of you, and that was the joy is a command. It's not optional. So, of course, the application to the sermon is to be joyful. Is it fair for God to command you to feel something? Sure it is. First of all, it is fair for God to do anything that God chooses to do. And he commands us throughout his word to have all sorts of emotions. But here is joy and here is delight. So what if I don't have joy this morning? Or what if my joy is in the wrong things today. Some of you are exhausted today, I know. Some of you have family drama. There are unpaid bills. There are health concerns. Your children don't believe. There are serious and significant things going on in your life. There are obstacles to joy. So what if, in the middle of all that, I don't have joy this morning? Well, I would think the biblical thing to do would be, number one, to repent. I mean, this is a command, isn't it? So we shouldn't take it lightly. And we shouldn't go too easy on ourselves. You should repent. That means you should express sorrow to God. I do not have joy. And I should have joy. 
and I'm sorry, God. You should ask his forgiveness. And you should pray for God to give you joy. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Is there anywhere in the Bible where someone prayed for joy? David in Psalm 51, 12 prayed to God, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So I would encourage you this morning, if you don't have joy, to repent for not having joy. To repent for not being happy enough in Christ. And to cry out to God and ask him to change your heart. To restore joy to your heart. And then lastly, I would encourage you, we're getting more and more familiar with this term, to use the means of grace. Use the means of grace. So I'm going to pray, I'm going to say, God, please give me joy, and then I'm going to do whatever I can to cultivate this joy in my heart. What are the means of grace? They are the means by which we experience the favor of God. What are those means? Prayer. Are you praying? Are you reading God's word? Are you fellowshipping with God's people? Are you listening to biblical teaching and preaching? Are you praising Him? Are you worshiping Him? There's no secret here. That's what we need to be busy about as Christians. Jonathan Edwards, when he was very young, wrote out all these resolutions, and one of them was this in regards to joy. Resolved, he said, to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. With all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. Deeply resolved in his pursuit of joy. Why? Because he knew what we know, that we have been made to bring glory to God by enjoying him forever. And now finally, we will have opportunity to do this again shortly, and you've had opportunities throughout the week, but I would encourage you to sing. We talked about how joy gets out, cheerfulness and laughter comes out in your countenance. What comes out in song comes out in the singing of God's people, comes out as God's people rejoice in song. Listen this next week to the Christmas music. Listen to these hymns. 
listen to it in your home and in your car and in the mall. It's everywhere. Some of our richest hymns as Christians are Christmas hymns. Hear them and sing them and be reminded of the joy we have in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, thank you for giving us songs to sing. God, thank you for creating us to sing to you, for creating us to find and express our joy in you. So, Lord, I pray for everyone here today that those who have no joy would turn and find joy today. That they would be reminded of your truth, of your word, their hearts would be changed. God, if there are people here today who have joy, but it is in the wrong place, And I pray that you would remind them of who you are and who we are. There would be no sense of entitlement. That we would all see these gifts that you've given us as undeserved gifts. And enjoy them as we enjoy you for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.